Good morning, everyone. Man, couldn't you just sing that song for another half hour? Jeez, that's powerful. What an encouraging and powerful thing to be able to sing together this morning. How awesome, man. I'm like, what am I talking about again? Um, <laughs> hey, we're in our series called Go Therefore, and that title is taken from Jesus' words at the end of Matthew's gospel where he tells his disciples, and by extension, the entire church throughout history, to go and make disciples. And so this is a series that's ultimately about evangelism. That's a topic that, as we've kind of been talking about throughout the last few weeks, can be intimidating and and scary for us. And so we're trying to look at it from a very different angle than most kind of systems or processes of evangelism that you typically hear about. And, And the biggest difference, and this is the key to this whole series, is that most kind of ideas of how to do evangelism and most sort of systems and classes you can take will teach a one-size-fits-all method of evangelism. And as anyone who has ever tried to try clothes on in any situation can promise you, one-size-fits-all is always a lie. Am I right? Nobody with a wingspan like this has ever been the all, part of the all of one-size-fits-all. <laughs> Nothing is one-size-fits-all. It's a lie. And it's, that's true in evangelism, just like it's true in clothing. Every person, every situation is different. And if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you find that he approaches different people in different contexts with very different methods. And so sometimes the situation in the person requires him to say something like, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then follow me. Other people, he says, I've got living water for you right now. Or he'll say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Sometimes, as we've been saying, he feeds a crowd miraculously. Other times when he sees a different crowd in a different situation, he flips their tables over and drives them out of the temple. Jesus has a massive variety of ways that he interacts with people and introduces himself to people. And so what we've been trying to do is look at different stories from the gospels of how Jesus introduces himself to different types of people and to see what we can learn about evangelism, about ourselves, and about Jesus. And this week, we have a strange one, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and it's, um, it's one that is kind of a minefield to walk into. It's the story, it's, it's traditionally called of the Gerasene demoniac, or as I like to call him, the super demon. It's the demon-possessed man who's possessed by, spoiler alert, more than one demon. And anytime you talk about demons or, or spiritual warfare or angels, it's dangerous territory because there's a massive range of viewpoints that people have about how demons operate, how angels operate, and how Christians are supposed to interact with them. So, and, and, you know, aside from the kind of huge variety of ways that we think about it, all of us, wherever we fall on the spectrum of how to view angels and demons, if we're honest with ourselves, most of our information about them, most of our kind of associations about them come from horror movies more than the Bible, right? And so I want to start, before we even look at the passage, by kind of grounding us in some some really profound wisdom from one of my favorite authors and thinkers, C.S. Lewis. In the introduction to his book, Screwtape Letters, which, speaking of demons and stuff, you should read that book if you haven't. Absolutely incredible. This is what he says in the introduction. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, by which he means demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, when he says materialist, he doesn't mean materialism in the sense of like being obsessed with money and material things. He means philosophical materialism 
which is the belief system that says the only thing that exists is the physical world. And the only things you can really know are things that you can feel, experience, and test scientifically, right? And so most Christians wouldn't actually identify themselves that way, but but functionally, when it comes to how we operate with the spiritual world, a lot of us do fall into that camp. So Lewis is warning us away from two extremes, and this is how I'd like to start today. First, he says, there's the materialist side of things. These are people who are kind of immediately skeptical of absolutely anything that sounds supernatural at all. And some of you guys are are probably internally nodding, going, yeah, that sounds like me. That if you hear the story of something supernatural happening, your first knee-jerk reaction is, oh, there's probably a a natural explanation for what that is. And that's a dangerous position to take for a number of reasons. And and again, most of us don't do it on purpose. But if you take that position, you're likely to to miss out on what's happening. Because the truth is, man, if you believe the Bible, there are massive spiritual forces at work behind the scenes in everyday life, in everything that we're doing. And if you take a materialist approach to spirituality, you can end up in a position where you're not aware of that, where you're not taking it seriously, where you're maybe vulnerable yourself and maybe not praying or helping your friends correctly. Now, on the opposite end, there's the, what he calls magicians, which I, I love, because he's talking about viewing spirituality not from a biblical lens, but from a magical lens. And you start to see the world as it, every single thing and every single activity has some sort of demonic or supernatural presence or activity behind it. And so items start, might start to take on kind of a magical, mystical, supernatural value, things like cross necklaces and, and where you place your Bible in your room and things like that. You start to see demons behind everything. And I've seen a lot of this. Uh, what, the story that came to mind this week, um, one time, I, a lot of us used to be in local bands. We'd play rock shows in the area. And I went to a concert at a church in San Jose once. And during the show, a guitar amplifier started going out during the set. And the pastor of that church came out and was, was praying, which is fine, but part of his prayer included uh, praying against demons that were afflicting this broken guitar amplifier. And again, I'm not trying to, to make fun of any viewpoint, but you can see how in that perspective, there's a, a demonic activity behind absolutely everything. You start to kind of jump at shadows, and the danger there is just as huge as the danger for the materialist person, because you start to give way too much credit to demonic activity. You start to, to lose your confidence in Jesus and his work. And, and honestly, you miss out on how the Bible describes most of the kind of temptations and difficulties we face. Because if you read the New Testament, yes, there are absolutely spiritual forces at work, but what's actually responsible for most of our bad behavior and bad temptations? Where does it come from? Us, right? James says it's your desires. Paul says it's your flesh. It's our broken nature. And I'm convinced that most of the demonic activity that's actually happening in the world is happening in a much more ordinary looking way than we would imagine. It has more to do with our our value systems, our interests, the things that we're focused on, the kind of worldviews that creep into our way of viewing our lives. And so as we start today, I wanna let this story teach us about the spiritual world, about supernatural attack, about the way demons operate, but I wanna start by letting C.S. Lewis kind of push all of us towards the middle. 
In full disclosure, for most of my life, I've probably leaned more in the kind of materialist direction. If I err in a direction, it's, it's typically been that one. But a number of experiences in my adult life, especially traveling in the developing world in places like Africa and the Caribbean and Southeast Asia, have, have moved me closer to the middle, I think, than I was before. And so, again, be gracious Understand that you're starting this conversation out with a bit of a bias, and let's see if the Bible has something new to teach us about how these realities work. Our story starts in Mark 5.1. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, they is Jesus and his disciples. They've just been ministering in the Galilee region. That's the sea that Mark is talking about, the Sea of Galilee. And they've been ministering exclusively in the Jewish parts of the kind of settled communities that are around the Sea of Galilee. Now, after a bunch of ministry there and some incredible stories, Mark is really concerned in the beginning of Mark with demonstrating Jesus' authority over things. And so he's, ha- he's shown his authority over sickness, his authority over the Sabbath and some other situations already. And right before this verse, what happens is him and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee on a boat and a massive storm kicks up. This is a very famous story. Many of you are probably familiar with it. And Jesus, when he wakes up and sees the storm, his disciples are all terrified of the storm. And he speaks a rebuke to the wind and the waves. He tells them, calm down. And they all calm down, and the storm ends. And it says his disciples are terrified, and they ask themselves, who is this guy, right? And so after that, the storm calms, and the boat continues, and they arrive at the country of the Gerasenes. This is part of uh, the Gentile Decapolis. It just means 10 cities in Greek. And it's a kind of a loose affiliation of 10 cities on the other side of Galilee that are all Gentile. So Jesus and his disciples, all Jewish people, they're arriving at a predominantly Gentile area. And as soon as they get there, a totally different and equally scary storm greets them. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And that is like a very arresting image, right? And so the first thing we focus on when we're reading that is this terrifying description of this guy. We'll talk about that in a second, but there's another layer that we totally miss because we're not first century Jewish people. And that's the the absolutely overwhelming level of uncleanness that Jesus is walking into in this situation. In, in the Old Testament law, we don't really have time to define this all the way out, but there is clean things and unclean things. And devout, godly Jewish people would have spent their whole lives learning how to avoid things that were unclean, things that would kind of distance them from God, things that would make them unable to go to the temple and participate in feasts and things like this. Jesus in this situation is walking into like this incredible multi-layered uncleanness. The first thing is he's in Gentile territory. These people are not Jewish, and typically, devout Jews at this time wouldn't eat in the home of a Gentile. They wouldn't spend time in regions like this. They'd be uncomfortable in an area like this, period. Then, to make matters worse, we're going to find out later in the story, in just a few verses, that people in this region are farming pigs. There are literally thousands of pigs around in, in this situation, on the hillside next to them. So it's unclean animals in unclean profession, right? So they're in an unclean Gentile area, surrounded by unclean animals and the people who work with them. Then they get approached by a guy who, who Mark says has an unclean spirit, right? 
which is, that's unclean enough. And where is he living? In tombs, dead bodies, another way of communicating uncleanness. So a, a Jewish audience, when they're reading this, would be curling their lip at this point and be like, oh my gosh. Before you even see the demon-possessed guy, there's, oh man, he's, he's just in unclean area with these people doing an unclean profession around unclean animals. Then he gets approached by a guy with an unclean spirit who lives in unclean tombs. There's something really powerful about this because Jesus is already, earlier in the book of Mark, he's healed a leper. And when he heals this guy with leprosy, he, somebody's like, a leopard? <laughs> a leper. He, t- he touches the leper. And Jewish people would not ever touch someone with a skin condition like that. Because they believed, and this is what the Old Testament taught, that when you touched something unclean, that uncleanness was then communicated to you. Jesus could have healed that guy without touching him. Isaac talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But Jesus chose to reach out and touch this guy And what happens is the opposite of what happens with every other human being. Instead of the uncleanness getting communicated to Jesus, Jesus' cleanness gets communicated to the unclean person and he's healed of leprosy. It's a really powerful moment. And here we see the same thing at an even higher level happening. Jesus is just boldly marching into this incredibly unclean environment with no fear of himself being contaminated. Now this guy, this is a cool, uh, cool uh, drawing that I think is from the 18th century. It's a terrifying image. I talked earlier just for a second about the fact that most of our kind of theology about demons and angels comes from movies like The Exorcist, right? The Ex- What's the other one with the, with the kid, it's super famous? The Omen, thank you. We get our ideas about what demon possession looks like from that. And when you read this story, the first part, you're like, okay, so far it's, it's kind of matching up with the exorcist, right? This guy is terrifying the way he's described. Luke's account says that the, the other villagers would drive him out into the wilderness. It's a very important word. He's driven out into the wilderness. He can't even live around people. When they've tried to chain him up, he has this supernatural strength that lets him break the chains that he's bound with. And so they drive him out, and he's been living in tombs, cutting himself up with rocks. It's a terrifying image, and it actually reveals to us, I think, some of the kind of underlying motivation and goals that demons have in this situation. Everything they're doing to this man is isolating him, sending him away from his community, and dehumanizing him. It's like they want to destroy the image of God that's in this man. He's physically defiguring himself, and he's living in tombs. He's still alive, but it's like he's already dead. They want the image of God destroyed in this man. It's it's really, when you read this description, it's like a mockery of human life. And it's terrifying. You're talking about a guy with superhuman strength who's been living in tombs, totally disfigured and cut up, and he comes rushing at Jesus. And again, if you're operating from kind of like a, a the exorcist worldview, you go, oh, here it comes. There's gonna be like this massive struggle, this massive battle. Jesus is gonna know all the right magic words. He's gonna have all the right magical objects. He's gonna be able to take this demon out. And the next verse is where all of our expectations about how demons interact with us kind of gets turned on its head. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. 
He sees Jesus, and in Greek, he prosecutes, and he, he throws himself down in reverence before Jesus. There is absolute humility, humiliation even, in this act. And he calls Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And that phrase is a Greek translation of a common Hebrew phrase in the Old Testament. It's used 31 times in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, it's El Elyon, Most High God. And Most High God is a name for God, a title for God, that's always used in the context of, of showing how God is greater than the pagan gods of other people groups. So, Throughout the Old Testament, it'll be like a prophet talking about how God is, is higher than the other so-called gods of other peoples. He's the most high God. And so there's something absolutely incredible about this Gentile man possessed by demons in a Gentile country who, when he sees Jesus, the demons say, again, spoiler alert, there's more than one. We're about to find that out. They call him the son of the most high God. There's no question, even in this area, Jesus' enemies know who he is. They know how authoritative he is. They know how powerful he is. There's no question of doing battle with him. They address him with respect and bow down before him. It's very significant. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. A legion was the largest unit in the Roman military at this time period. And at full strength, a legion was 6,000 troops. Now that does not necessarily mean, in fact, it almost certainly doesn't mean that that's the exact number of demons that are involved here. The point is just, there's a ton of them, right? But this image of legion carries some other kind of ideas with it also. First of all, legions are military, right? Violence, oppression, danger, the kind of motivation and goal of the demons is, is revealed again here. This is, these are violent, militant creatures. And if you're a Jewish person in the first century, the image of legion calls up a whole bunch of other ideas too, right? Because who's oppressing your people group and has been for years and years and years? Rome, right? Roman legions. When you think of a legion of Roman troops, you think of the occupying foreign military force that has been oppressing your people and in many cases, abusing you and your family. And so that image of, of legion it carries this, this incredibly deep and rich imagery. But again, when they're confronted with Jesus, they beg him for mercy. It's a legion of the enemies of God beg Jesus for mercy, bowing in front of him. And here's where it gets really weird, if it wasn't weird enough already. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. No, the bacon! <laughs> Save the bacon! Save the bacon, that's a game, isn't it? Steal the bacon. Steal the bacon. Sorry. <laughs> This is one of the strangest verses in the New Testament, and frankly, scholars and commentators have a million ideas, and, and no one really knows exactly what's going on here. And Mark doesn't go out of his way to comment on it. He doesn't say why Jesus let them do this. He doesn't say what the purpose is. I have, I have a couple ideas, but I want to really stress this is all speculation because the Bible is just not clear about what's going on here. A couple things that come to mind are, once again, you get in a picture of what kind of the ultimate goal of these demons is, that when they get what they want and they're sent into these pigs, what they do is they destroy them. They kill them. There's this destructive 
in, in, uh, goal that they finally are able to achieve. The other thing that I think might be going on here that's really interesting to me is that I think it's sort of a prefiguring of the eventual end of all evil spirits. Jesus in his earthly ministry is kind of giving a foretaste of where everything is headed in history. And at the end of the whole story, every evil spirit ends up in a different lake. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know what I'm talking about. And so I I kind of think there's an image here that when Jesus comes and when Jesus acts with authority, the evil spirits end up dead in this lake. But again, Mark doesn't seem to be too concerned about it. Mark is much more concerned with the way he's, he's described this encounter. This is one of the longest kind of interactions we get in Mark. Mark is kind of like a boom, boom, boom. He's moving from thing to thing really quickly type of author. But he slows down and shows us a lot. I mean, you guys have, how many of you guys have heard the term power encounter before? This is how you can tell what, what like uh, spiritual heritage this church has. <laughs> power encounter is a, a fairly common term in, in different theological sort of backgrounds. And it's typically how you describe like an encounter between an exorcist and a demon or some, any kind of supernatural encounter. And it's the correct term for what's happening in this story for sure. Because what you see and what Mark wants you to see is this utter mismatch of power and authority between Jesus and these demons. If you're used to horror movies, you expect there to be elaborate rituals, special words you have to use, special items that you have to have. When Jesus sees these demons, they throw themselves at his feet in reverence and beg him for mercy. And by the way, every time Jesus interacts with demons in the New Testament, that's what it's like. There's no contest. There's no battle. There's no struggle. And this is a big deal for a lot of Christians because um, Christians in, in different again, Christian traditions, and especially in other parts of the world, have a really hard time with this. Um, I have friends in Cambodia and Africa in particular, and also actually in, in Haiti, who, if you, if you came out of a pagan system that involved things like witch doctors and magical remedies and magical processes that you had to follow to achieve victory over evil spirits, you become a Christian, and that stuff doesn't just go away. We don't have that in this culture, but a lot of Christians in other cultures will, um, I was actually talking to some, some of my friends before service about this, that I've met Christians who, um, when, you, when you're not a Christian in Cambodia, many people will wear a red cord around their wrist to protect themselves from evil spirits, and many people will become Christians, but it takes them years to cut that cord because the fear is still there. And so there's this mix of a magical worldview, right, with a biblical worldview. I met a Christian who had been a Christian for a couple of years and she still had what they called a spirit hut in her front yard. Um, And that was to protect their house from evil spirits. And so, you know, their pastors were really pushing them and urging them to get rid of it, but there's a fear there. And it's a mixture of that magical worldview with the Christian worldview. And stories like this show us there's absolutely no place for things like that in Christianity. When Jesus confronts the demonic, the demonic bows to him and begs him for mercy. And with a word, a legion of the enemy just leaves. They go away. I think that's really significant for us. We'll talk more about why in a minute, but let's finish this story. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had, the le- who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. It's the exact same response that the disciples had when Jesus calmed the storm, by the way. 
And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. First of all, I love this. This is such a beautiful picture of what a restored person looks like. He's in his right mind, clothed, and sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is what the restoration Jesus brings does. But it's really interesting that they want to send him out of the region. And again, Mark doesn't say necessarily that it's because of the destruction of the pigs. I know that that's the reason that most people say. Um, I don't know if that's why. I think there's a fear, and that's what Mark does say. They're afraid of Jesus, and they send him away. I mean, I've met a lot of people who say things like, if I could just see an example of God being real, of God's power, then I would believe in him. But stories like this one and other stories that happen all throughout the Gospels show that that's really not the case most of the time. Every once in a while, that is how God will win somebody over. But man, Jesus does incredible, miraculous things, and people want nothing to do with it. You know, could you just please leave? This is too crazy for us. Now, throughout this series, we've been talking about the barrier that the person who Jesus interacts with has between him and Jesus, and then what the gospel solution to that barrier is. And this week, the barrier is, is at the same time, really simple and easy to identify, and also really complicated to apply. What's this guy's barrier between him and Jesus? Don't ever think it. Demons, right? That seems weird to say, but that's the story. As this guy was separated from community, he was disfiguring himself, living in tombs, and it was because of demonic activity. And before we can even talk about what the solution is, we gotta address the kind of elephant in the room, which is that how many of us, on a regular basis, interact with someone whose barrier is demons, and it's that obvious, right? In a room this size, there's a good chance it's happened to a couple of you, or or that it will at some point. But most of the time, especially in this part of the world, it's way, way more subtle than this. Again, there are places, and and it's, it's kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about today to look at why this is the case, but there are places in the world where it seems like this sort of situation still happens with more frequency, but in the Western developed world, you just don't see that much of it. It still happens, but man, most of the time, it's subtle. It's in the ordinary lives of people. It's in the worldviews of people. It's in the value systems of the people you know. The activity of the spiritual evil that's happening underneath the surface can be hard to see sometimes. And that's where I think we need to return to what C.S. Lewis said. We talked about it at the beginning. Because where you land on this continuum between materialism and magic will absolutely affect your ability to either see these things when they're happening or to see these things when they're not happening or if you're all, all the way on the materialist side, to not see these things when they are happening. That was a horribly confusing way to say that, right? <laughs> you either, let's do it in a linear way instead. You either don't see these things when they are happening, or you see these things when they're not happening, right? And in a balanced middle perspective, I think we can learn, if we let the Bible teach us, how to, how to have eyes to see the spiritual influences that are at work behind the scenes. To the materialist, if you're, if you're in the congregation right now and you're thinking from when we talked about that C.S. Lewis quote that that's kind of you, that you tend to just discredit anything supernatural that you ever hear about, I would ask you, do you feel like your spiritual eyes are dull? Like you've accepted a, fr- a philosophical presupposition that says that only the, f- the physical world exists. 
Because again, I would caution you, if you are walking around your life completely unaware of and dismissive of the, the spiritual forces that are at work behind the scenes, I think you, it will lead you to miss their influence on people in your life who you might have an impact on, either by teaching them the truth or by praying for them. And on the other side, there are some of you who, who have more of a magical view of the world. And if you're honest with yourself, you realize that there are even objects in your life. Again, things like, like cross necklaces, things like special books that, depending on where you put them, you feel more or less safe, ritualistic things that you say or do that have Christian kind of sounds to them, but that ultimately don't really belong in a biblical worldview. To you, I would say, the New Testament perspective on spiritual warfare is not one that leads, should lead Christians to be jumping at shadows or to be seeing specific demons or the devil, which is the way a lot of people tend to talk about it. Oh, the devil's really after me right now. Again, like we talked about earlier, when the New Testament authors talk about our sin and our temptation, most of the time they identify it with our own fallen nature. It's our desires. It's our flesh. And so are you the kind of person who, who jumps at shadows, who's kind of ready to cast demons out of the car when it won't start in the morning. There's like three people in the audience right now who are like, I definitely did that today. <laughs> and again, to you, I would ask, do you have confidence in what Jesus has done for you? Do you have confidence in the victory of your king? Because ultimately, the solution to this barrier is massive, and it's simply this, it's, it's the gospel. It's Jesus' finished work on the cross that gives Christians confidence in the face of any kind of spiritual warfare. This is how Paul describes it in Colossians 2. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see that connection, by the way, between human tradition false beliefs humans have, and elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Christians have been filled in him. Now, after this, there's a couple verses talking about baptism and how we identify with Jesus in baptism. Then he says this. It's one of my favorite sections of the entire New Testament. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is where it really zooms in on what we're talking about today. He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in Jesus at the cross. A verse like this forces the materialist and the magician to both come towards the middle because Paul is openly acknowledging the existence of these things, but he's also saying, they're not gonna stop your car from starting. And, and frankly, as a Christian, you have been filled with the God who destroyed them, who defeated them, who in the, in the future will finally destroy them, but in the meantime has disarmed them, taken away their weapons, and put them to open shame. Do you have confidence in that? 
Or are you on the one hand completely dismissive of everything supernatural and on the other hand terrified of them and feel no sense of confidence at all in Jesus or in what he's done for you or in the safety that you have as somebody who has been made alive by God? I want to look at the end of the story of the demoniac because there's this incredible moment that happens at the end of the story. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Be with him is kind of a technical term that seems to mean becoming his disciple. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began proclaiming in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This guy has zero Bible training. He has a very short experience with Jesus, and Jesus says, you go be the very first missionary to the Gentiles. What do you need to do? Tell them what the Lord has done for you. We don't know a whole lot about what this guy knew about Jesus, but we, knew one, we know one thing. Jesus says, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And what the man does is goes into the Decapolis and tells people how much Jesus had done for him. You see that? This formerly demon-possessed man knows that the man who the demons that had been oppressing him called the son of the most high God, he knows that's the Lord. He knows that when Jesus says, you go tell him what the Lord has done for you, he goes, okay, I'll go tell him what you've done for me. He gets it. And later on in the Gospels, when Jesus comes back to this region, there are people who are seeking him. It's an incredible end to the story, and it's a reminder of how if you have been saved by Jesus, you are ready to tell people about him right now. You don't need a class. Those things can help. That's why we're doing this series. You don't need to wait until you've read the whole Bible 10 times. You don't need to wait until you've read a book about evangelism. Go to your friends and tell them what Jesus has done for you. I mean, that, this verse could be the entire sermon today. And so as we close, I just want to encourage you guys with the knowledge that what Jesus has done on the cross, the way Paul describes it in Colossians 2, he has disarmed those forces. And if you're a Christian, you have been filled with him. Now, now by the way, if you're not a Christian, you're sort of checking out Christianity, feel free to kind of consider this from a distance. We want you here, we want you exploring these ideas. Please ask us questions, interact with this. But for Christians, if you believe the Bible, you have been filled with the God who disarmed the rulers and authorities in this world. Most of the warfare that you're going to to wage in your life as a Christian is going to be against your own flesh. And the spiritual warfare that you might end up involved with that that involves other spiritual forces, man, I think most of the time it involves prayer and sharing the gospel with people. There's actually a story in the New Testament where um, the the apostles are trying to cast a demon out of someone and they can't. And then Jesus does. And they ask him, hey, how come we couldn't do that? We were kind of doing the thing that normally works. And Jesus said, this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. In other words, there's not some magical formula And so I, you know, I actually, I considered whether or not I was going to like tell stories about supernatural experiences or things that have either happened to me or things that I've heard about. And I decided not to because I don't want to give any more credit to this stuff than it already has in most of our hearts and minds. I want 
to fill you guys as much as I possibly can with confidence in the God who has already won the definitive battle against evil, who will finish the job someday in the future, and in the meantime, who has disarmed them and filled you up. You, if you're in Christ, that is your source of safety. When you pray for others, you pray in the name of Jesus, not because the the pronunciation of that combination of syllables has magical power, but because the victorious king who is called by those syllables has authority and power. You see the difference? It's about Jesus and what he's done. So anytime in my life, in my travels in the developing world or here, that I've had any kind of interaction with supernatural things or things that I think might be supernatural things, I have never tried to draw confidence from, from a particular, I shouldn't say I have never. When I was younger, I, I actually have in a couple of situations. But since kind of coming to terms with a lot of this, I, I haven't tried to draw any kind of confidence from rituals or magical ideas or magic words or even using the name of Jesus in a magic word kind of way. I have drawn confidence from the victory of Jesus over Satan at the cross. And the knowledge that because of that, because of what Jesus has done, I have the spirit of the creator of heaven and earth in me. I'm a servant of the most high God. I'm a servant of the king of heaven and earth. Whom shall I fear? And so in those times of fear, I remind myself of that. I pray to my God for protection and I remind myself that I am on the winning side. This is not a fair fight. And so I want to invite you guys to do the same, to trust in Jesus for your salvation, for your protection. And when you interact with people who you you worry might be involved in something like this, to lean on the gospel, to preach the gospel, and to look to it as your source of strength. And with that in mind, I'm really excited to invite up a good friend and somebody that you guys are familiar with who's going to share a story from her life that that really speaks, I believe, to the authority and victory of Jesus over these things in a really practical and, uh, and I think, empowering and encouraging way. And so would you guys welcome up our our very gifted worship leader and, and my friend, Lisa Dowler. morning. How's everybody doing? So I am so much more comfortable singing than I am speaking. So I decided I'd sing my testimony. Just kidding. (laughs) That would be really weird. (laughs) Um, No, I am going to read it though because Greg and I talked for two and a half hours when he talked about my testimony and um, I'm supposed to be in seven minutes. So I'll try to Uh, shorten a few things. So I'm going to jump right in. Let me pray real fast. Um, Jesus, you are strong in my weakness, and I pray that you be glorified in my weakness and in my story. That is your story, Lord. Um, In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, it's so different being up here speaking than singing. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Okay, so I grew up in a dysfunctional family in Morgan Hill. Um, I was familiar with neglect, uh, drug abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and severe mental health problems within my immediate family. I grew up with a lot of shame, and I wished that I had a new life that was different. I actually remember journaling that exact sentence. I wish I had a new life that was different and free from shame. 
Um, around 12 years old, I had a traumatic event take place, which sent me on the road to agnosticism and eventually atheism. I began drinking, doing drugs, and partying around 14 years old. Um, in college, I continued this pattern. Uh, Drew, the worship leader here, and I dated when I was 17 years old for about two and a half years. And when we broke up, uh, it was devastating for me. It was very hard. So um, that's actually when I started writing music. I started writing heartbreak songs. Um, <laughs> so I moved to San Francisco, and I lived a very prodigal lifestyle there. Um, at this time in my life, I didn't believe in anything spiritual. I respected world religions, but not Christianity. Um, I had a very strong dislike for Christianity and Christians. Uh, people on the streets in San Francisco um, would give me tracts, you know, like a, a gospel tract, and I would be like, effing Christians, and throw it in the garbage. So it's kind of where I was at. So this is uh, the beginning of the story of my conversion. Uh, it began with a dream that I had that I believe was from God. Um, I died in a plane accident in my dream, and I found myself in this beautiful afterlife place. And this contradicted what I believed about an afterlife because I didn't believe in anything spiritual. I didn't believe there was an afterlife. Um, I was very impacted by this dream, and so I decided to fail out of college and pursue music. It was a very mature and logical decision, um, which my mom supported, actually. Um, so I recorded a demo of or original music that I had written with a friend, and um, I was very proud of that. And so the night that I was celebrating uh, the recording and my new life decision to pursue music, um, I had my first uh, possibly demonic experience. Um, I couldn't move my body, kind of all of a sudden, and I thought I had a stroke. So um, I remember thinking, oh, I just decided to do what I want to do, and now I had a stroke. Um, but it turned out that I didn't have a stroke. The next day, I was fine. Um, not too much longer after that, I had an experience where I saw the presence of God. And I can't really explain this um, very well, but um, it was very beautiful and it was very moving. Um, and I just cried while that happened. So at this point, God had shown me that there was an afterlife and that um, God is real and living, that there is a living God. Um, after that experience, I became obsessed with figuring out the meaning of life. Um, in my apartment one day, I was obsessively writing uh, about the meaning of life, and I decided I needed to just kind of chill out and go on my little fire escape uh, patio in my apartment, which, by the way, I lived over a brothel <laughs> in San Francisco. Like, literally, I would see men coming in, and um, it was definitely a prostitution place. So I was just above that. I just think that's cool that God would meet us anywhere. Um, so I was outside having a cigarette, trying to chill out, and um, the presence of God came to me in a very powerful way. Um, it felt like when someone is standing like right behind you, 
Um, but it was like all around me completely. And it was very scary. It was not like, oh, you're so beautiful, God. It was like, you are the most powerful God and I'm going to die right now. Um, so I actually ran inside. Um, I was very scared. Uh, and then uh, God spoke to me audibly and said, take what you need, give what you can. And um, I immediately realized everything that I was doing in my life was wrong. Um, I saw my obsessive writings on the bed and understood that I was trying to figure out life, the meaning of life, apart from God. And I also had, um, I had the deepest feeling in my heart that I had hurt the heart of God. Um, it felt like I had just totally hurt my best friend. And so I sat down on my bed and I began to cry and I said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, just over and over, just crying. Um, after I stopped crying um, and it was quiet, I began to hear demonic voices saying things like, you can't talk about this. Uh, you can't say God's name or he will kill you. You can't tell anyone about this or he will kill you. Um, so it's kind of intense. <laughs> Um, I quickly remembered that a friend of mine, um, her mother, like years before, had told me that God had spoken to her. Um, at the time that she told me this, I thought she was crazy, and I was thinking, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but I remembered her words, and I remembered she's not dead. She talked about God speaking to her. So I called her, and um, she, I just told her what happened, and she said, uh, what are you going to do? And I'm like... Uh, God told me to take what you need and um, give what you can, and I have nothing to give, but I need love. Um, I need to go home to my mom. I had surrounded myself in an environment and friends and a lifestyle that was extremely unloving and unhealthy. Um, so my friend's mom gave me a phone number of a biblical counselor when I had talked to her. Um, that night, I came back to Morgan Health, to where my mom was living, and I was uh, being tormented by demonic voices. Um, I finally couldn't take it anymore, and I went in my mom's room, and um, I said, I'm schizophrenic. I need to go to the hospital. I felt horrible. It was the worst experience, the worst feeling ever. Um, and so she actually made an appointment for me, for Kaiser, uh, the next day. Um, the next day, I was by myself, my mom was at work, um, and I did not go to the doctor because I deep down really believed that it was about God. So um, that night, I was being tormented again by, by demons, and um, I finally broke down and called uh, the woman that my friend's mom had given me, the biblical counselor's number, and... Um, I was just, it was such a scary place. I, I had got to a place where I believed I was Satan. Um, so I went outside, um, and I called the woman. Her name is Penny. Um, I began to tell Penny everything that was going on. I told her I thought I was Satan, and that if I was Satan, I wanted to die, and that I thought and then I would go back and to the other side, and I'd say, no, but I think God has something for me to do, and I just don't know what he wants me to do. Um, she had a newborn baby at the time. I think she was nursing her baby. 
Um, so she told me later that she could literally hear the spiritual battle going on um, in what I was saying. So she asked me if she could pray. Um, I said yes. And when she prayed, she prayed with such accuracy that I knew it was God speaking to me through her. It was incredible. Um, she would say what I was thinking as I was thinking it, my thoughts and her words met together at the same moment in real time. So I looked up at the stars, my cell phone, um, and I, I said to God in my heart, okay, um, what do you want to say to me? I'm listening. It was quiet. And that's when she said, when I'm really scared, I go to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't want to cry. Um, and I laughed out loud. I was like, Jesus, <laughs> I'm talking about God, not religion. Like, I'm talking about the real God, the living God. And she said, Jesus is God. He is God's son. And I thought, you know, I didn't believe that before, but now everything is so crazy. I mean, I thought maybe I could be Satan, so <laughs> kind of was at a place where my mind was open to that idea. <laughs> um, and she said to me, if you ask him to be your Lord and Savior, he will never leave you or forsake you. And I said, okay. So we did the salvation prayer on the phone. And um, I interrupted in the beginning. Um, it began, I believe I'm a sinner. And I'm like, yeah, I got that. Um, in the life of Adam. And I didn't understand that about Adam. So she explained to me that Adam and Eve were created to live forever. And that because of sin, they died and we die. That is when I had the biggest light bulb moment of my life. God revealed the gospel to me in that moment. He had said, take what you need, and I realized I need Jesus, and give what you can all of myself. So I prayed the prayer, and as I prayed, I felt myself die. Um, I don't know how to explain that one either. Uh, I, th I thought they were going to find me on the sidewalk dead and not know like what happened. Um, and after I died... I felt the Holy Spirit come into my very, the very center of my being and just go like psh, throughout my body. Um, so I immediately understood that I was a born-again Christian because I died and was born again. Um, I went to Penny's house that night. And um, by the way, I think it's so amazing that she let me come over. She had a newborn baby. She's like this sweet, sweet church lady. And here I am like dressed in all black. My hair was all short and black and I looked probably kind of scary. I was kind of saying like, I think I'm Satan. Like I just think that's so cool that she would allow me to come over. Um, and so we sat down on her couch and uh, with her husband, Dave, who baptized me. Um, and not that night, but he was the one who baptized me. Um, <laughs> she handed me the tract, a gospel tract, and she said, um, write today's date on here because you're born again. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> she didn't know what I had experienced. but So I wrote down the day, and it was um, May 20th, 2003. And my birthday is November 20th, and I was 20. So it was exactly six months in the year. I just thought that was kind of cool. Um, but I just sat there on her couch because I'd kind of already forgotten, like, what I had prayed. And she's like, you're going to live forever. And I'm like, I don't really want to. <laughs> that sounds really weird. Um, and, um, but when I looked at the tract, I just was like, I thought I knew everything. Like I thought, I mean, you know, I was, I, my family on my mom's side, very educated, PhDs. 
I thought I just had everything figured out, um, but I realized I was completely wrong, and I didn't know anything. And it makes me think of that verse, that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. It's so true. Um, so I stayed there that night. Um, I felt really loved. It was also really funny because I was in, like, the lifestyle I was in was so different. And she had me stay in her, her baby's room. So there was, like, all these teddy bears on a bed. I'm like, who is this lady with all these teddy bears? Um, now I'm that lady. <laughs> I'm, like, the church lady now. Um, but so, anyways, she answered a lot of questions for me the next morning. Um, she started to disciple me. I remember one of my very first questions was, why couldn't Jesus have been a woman? I was a little uh, feminist. <laughs> and she gave me a Bible, um, and she has been a mother to me in the faith since then. Um, God, is, God was faithful to help me leave my old life behind me. Um, I stopped drinking and doing drugs, and even smoking cigarettes was miraculously taken away from me. I broke up with, um, not Drew, another boyfriend that I had at the time who was a drug dealer, and I moved back uh, with my mom, and I began to go to Bible college at San Jose Christian College, and, which is now William Jessup University. Um, I lost some friends, and people thought I was crazy, and I even... Uh, literally struggled with thinking for years even after um, that I was crazy or is Jesus real? Like there was not really an in-between. It was like I'm either schizophrenic or I need Jesus. <laughs> um, it's been 15 years, so I think Jesus is real. <laughs> um, I began writing songs to Jesus and serving at my church. And um, it was not an easy road to follow Jesus and it continues to not be easy, as it never is. But I've learned three things that I want to share with you. One, read the Bible all the way through, cover to cover, study it, avail yourself of all of the ways that we have to study the Bible. Um, this will keep you from believing lies and help you to spot bad theology. Now, number two, pray to God and spend time with him as your best friend, Lord, and Savior. Really let him know you. It takes a lot of time. Um, number three, give it all to God. He is not a halfway God. It's constant and complete repentance. I have so much more that I could share, but I think I at least went 10 minutes. <laughs> um, but, you know, God has restored my family and done many miracles, but I was supposed to talk on my spiritual experiences. <laughs> um, so in conclusion, I can say, as Penny said to me, if you, give, um, if you have Jesus be your Lord and Savior, he will never leave you or forsake you. He has never left me or forsaken me. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Lisa. It takes a lot of courage to share your story, but there's power in it. And there's power in her testimony today. I believe unequivocally that um, Satan is about deception. It isn't about power. We over-empower him way too much. And as we stand, we're going to sing about the advocacy of Christ in us. It talks about that, that our name is graven on his hand. Our, it is written on his heart. Let's stand together as we sing this. And 
as I'm listening to, to Lisa's testimony this morning, um, I just want to give an exhortation as we sing this song, because I do believe that there are some of you that need to be reminded that Jesus is your advocate today. I, I have a sense that, that maybe some of you are stuck in that deception. It's time to be freed from that today. And as we sing this, let's be reminded of truth. Truth prevails. Maybe some of you are stuck in an ideology that is continuing to overempower the enemy. It's time to be freed from that today. If that's you this morning, I, I want to encourage you. Um, maybe someone here is, is stuck in sinful behavior and the devil has overempowered you in the sense that, you know, that this is okay. God wants you to be freed from it today. And it's on my heart. I, I just believe that God wants to do something miraculous in, in some of your lives today. But over, um, over it all, Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the one who empowers us today. So let's sing this, and let's be empowered today as a congregation. <laughs>